Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, uh, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And we have an incredible show for you today with Larry and Michael Wetzel from Air Innovations in Syracuse, New York, a second-generation family business that does some pretty amazing things. And rather than me even talking, trying to talk about what they do, um, I just want to say welcome to both of you, and I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. So, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm Larry, um, the old man of the crowd, and uh, we're happy to be here. Great. And you're Michael, Michael right? There yeah, we go. I, I have plenty of fun. Right. That's correct. Perfect. So, why, Larry, why don't you give me give us a little bit of a history of the company and how you started it and, you know, what was it like? What were you working on when you started it? Well, at the time I was working as a mechanical contractor, uh, working for a company that did mechanical plumbing, uh, HVAC and process piping. And um, we came across a project for General Electric here in Syracuse that was called a clean room. And, um, we negotiated the mechanical portion with a general contractor out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. It really involved just about every part of mechanical engineering and um, technology. Uh, the clean room required extremely sensitive um, temperature, humidity control, as a lot of very high-end process piping requirements, ultra-pure uh, piping. And, uh, and so it kind of intrigued me. And uh, what we went on, we did, we built a number of rooms, I'd say, over three-year period with this company, as well as doing our local HVAC and plumbing work. Um, but I got more and more intrigued by it. And it turns out that it was really a very new technology, and most of the customers we're looking for somebody to do it on a turnkey basis. In other words, guarantee a price and a delivery and a performance. And since it was so new, there were, we had very few competitors who, who were willing to take that risk. Um, but we were very confident about what we were doing. And, and so I left the company I was with started a new company called Clean Room Technology. And we continued to work primarily with the group out of Grand Rapids, although we became a more significant part of the whole project than their architect. They did mostly just architectural work. Um, so we, um, we were asked to do some projects uh, by other companies. 
And so we started to branch out a bit. Um, that's where we really got started. Mike um, graduated from Clarkson and that he um, worked for a mechanical contractor, two mechanical contractors in the Albany area doing the same kind of mechanical work, HVAC and plumbing. Um, and, and then our company became successful enough that we merged, cleaning technology merged with a company in France. And um, Mike had an opportunity to go to France as kind of our expert in HVAC uh, because the company in France did mostly just architectural walls and ceiling systems. And so we were able to provide the customer with a complete package out of our own factories, which was really unique. So that's how we got started. Uh, and that's how Mike got involved. Um, and, um, and then after, I guess, four years or so, Mike was in, in France. Um, I started to become not too happy with working under the French. And so, and then I started to um, ease away from the business. And, uh, and the French weren't doing that well with that. They, they put the wrong people in place, in my opinion. And um, so we, um, I just, I, I started, actually left and started, helped start with another group of guys, a venture capital company called Exponential Business Development here in Syracuse. So we worked at that for a couple of years. Um, and, but then the French really wanted out of the U.S. They were they're strong in Europe, but they wanted out. And Mike and his wife decided they wanted to come back. So um, what we did is we bought a small local refrigeration business from a friend of mine that specialized in refrigerated flower coolers, open coolers, unique in that they were open to the atmosphere. But they maintained the temperature uh, for the flowers to be preserved. And, and, uh, and so together then we built that business up and but still wanted to get back into our love, which was the cleaner of business and HVAC. And so we started with a product that we could introduce into that market and uh, use the flower coolers, but um, one big opportunity came when the French, when they decided they wanted to get out, they wanted to sell portion of the business. And so we were able to negotiate and acquire uh, a significant part of their business, which was making very large, sophisticated uh, air conditioning units for a particular customer in the clean room and the semiconductor industry. Awesome. And that really gave us a shock in the arm uh, by being able to acquire that. And eventually we bought the building and, and just been going forward since then. Great. Hey, so Michael, talk about, you know, from your perspective, you know, Larry just gave a great, you know, background of the business. Um, talk about, you know, bring us up to speed in terms of when you came in, what, when did you get involved? What made you decide to, you know, work together? How is it, how has it been working together, father and son, as you're doing this stuff? 
Um, and then maybe, you know, talk about some of the projects that, you know, that the two of you have tackled together. I think there's some pretty exciting things that you've done through the years. And I think I last I last we spoke, you know, there was something pretty cool that you're working on now. So, you know, maybe bring us up to speed a little bit from your perspective. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so I think it's um, I think it's a little bit interesting, maybe a little different than than maybe typical family businesses in that um, what ended up happening, how we got in together is we actually both bought into a business at the same time. So that's a little different, unique. There's a the chain is broken a little bit, even though we sort of came back around again. They're doing the same thing. I, I got into the business moving back from France, looking for something to do. And I was actually interviewing for jobs on the, on the West coast. And my father had this small manufacturing company inside their, um, their seed capital company. And, um, what they had determined, what really needed to happen is the, the owner needed to sell that business. And so my father and I bought that business together. So we went in as partners. I mean, that's, um, that was really the start of me getting into it. Prior to that, I was working for the French over there. Um, and so we got into it together by buying in. And then we decided to buy a piece of his old business back that, that got us into the cleanroom industry. Um, and so that was uh, such a little bit, little bit unique in that regard that it's more partners than, than I think, um, than your traditional transition, right? Sure. Um, then, you know, it's sort of, it was an interesting moment, I remember, after we bought into the cleaner business. Because here we were building, keep in mind, we were building display cases for supermarkets. That's what we were doing. 100% of the business was display cases for supermarkets. And then we started dabbling in this clean room product. And then we bought this air conditioning piece from a clean room company under the umbrella of a display case company. And so it was, it was a confusing moment as to, well, what are we really? And who are we really? And what, because most companies are an industry, right? You sell into a particular industry and that's what you do. Here we had two vastly different industries. I mean, they're, they're short, they share nothing in common. You have one that's very high tech and one that's supermarket, um, consumer based. It's very, very different industries. Let me, let me, connect ask, let me ask you to pause for just a second. For those people that are listening that don't know what a clean room is, do you mind just giving a, the the thirty, you know, the the high overview because it is pretty cool. Yeah, so, so clean rooms are the uh, people that have seen uh, in movies and such people wearing bunny suits, all white uh, white gowns and hairnets, and and even sometimes even more extreme than that. But clean rooms are rooms that are very precisely controlled for temperature, humidity, and particle cleanliness. So to breathe in the air, they're very very clean. They're a uh, hundred thousand times cleaner than, than a, a typical office space or even more than that. Um, these are the rooms that where they're manufacturing semiconductor devices, where they're packaging your drugs, they're making your drugs so that these aren't contaminated with um, particles that would otherwise be floating around in the Probably the closest that people might know would be in an operating room. Operating rooms are clean rooms in, in that the air is filtered to a certain level with HEPA filters, the same filters that are used in gas masks. But in the semiconductor, in the pharmaceutical, in the aerospace, the level of cleanliness is much, much cleaner, and the requirements for temperature and humidity control, pressurization is much higher than in an operating room. Yeah, perfect. I, yeah, so, so, that way. yeah, so we hit this kind of odd point in our time where we had this floral business and this cleaner business, 
And oh, in the middle there, somebody approached us about building cooling units for wine cellars. So we had these three elements, wine cellars, um, semiconductor clean rooms, and, and floral display cases all under the same umbrella of a company called Floritech, which didn't make a lot of sense either. And so we sort of sat back and we had a couple of board meetings and said, okay, well, who are we? What are we? And um, there wasn't a lot of role models. I remember actually saying, well, we're sort of like 3M, aren't we? <laughs> which, you know, it, seems, it just seems bizarre to think of a time, but 3M is in a lot of diversified businesses. And um, we decided that as long as the technology connection was there. So what we were doing in floral, what we're doing in semiconductor, what we're doing in wine is fundamentally very similar. We're, we're refrigeration and air conditioning experts. So we're just packaging it in different ways and leveraging those technologies in different industries. We're not an expert in floral display cases. We're not an expert in cleaners. We're not an expert in the wine cellar. We're actually experts in the cooling systems that are being leveraged to, to make those industries successful. And you know, as long as we kept that tie, we said, hey, it might actually be quite um, strategic to be diversified because these are all niche industries. Uh, semiconductor is an extremely cyclical industry. It's probably the most cyclical industry we've ever been exposed to. They may run um, 300 miles an hour, then it might come to a dead stop for a couple of years, and then they do it again. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible, the, the rise and falls in semiconductor. But all of these industries, they're niches, they're small industries, so they all have these cycles. And we said, boy, if we had enough of them, you'd be stable because somebody's up, somebody's down, somebody's up, somebody's down. You put them all together and you become stable. And so that became our mantra from the early 2000s forward. We rebranded the company to Air Innovations, which was a more generic name that didn't align us with floral, it didn't align us with clean rooms, it, it kept it more generic. And... Um, under the Air Innovations umbrella, now we were given the freedom to chase all kinds of niches, provided the underlying technology we were providing was similar. Because our engineers are repeating the same tasks each time. We're, we're sizing cooling systems, compressors, and coils, and valves. We're, we're getting good at lots of different types of packaging of those components. But when you strip away the component of the application, the, the core technologies uh, are similar. And, and so we've been extremely successful over the years because of that diversity. And we, we keep pushing diversity. We're, we're, we get a little nervous when one business concentration gets too high. And, and we've had those cases because when they do their dip, it, it can be really tough on the business. And so, you know, we've really been working hard to expand diversity. And, and now, you know, we've done projects for aerospace all around the world for the South Koreans at every aerospace launch complex here in the U.S. Um, we do wine cellars. We do explosion-proof systems for offshore oil uh, refinery. We do wine cellars. We, we do a little tiny bit of display cases. Almost nothing anymore. It was originally the entire business. When we bought it together in 96, it was the entire business. Right. And now I think we build... Uh, half a dozen cases a year, uh, and we build somewhere around 5,000 systems a year. So a half a dozen cases on 5,000 is not a very big concentration anymore <laughs> in the floral industry. But, you know, we've been very successful at, at driving um, diversification. And that's actually what makes the business fun, because we are constantly being exposed to projects that you would never even expect to, to find. Um, people now come and look for us when, when they come across a need for 
temperature control or humidity control. And it's all process level. You know, we don't call people. We're, we're taking care of high valuable things or um, devices. And so when they can't find something and they land on our website, they immediately say, wow, this company has done so much of this process work. Um, even if it's not in their industry, they call us. I think that the, uh, the main takeaway there is that we have this diverse industry or application, but we, we stay close to our knitting. I mean, we, we, we have a core competency that we utilize in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't get out of that because that's where you get in trouble. Love it. I, you're, you're hitting on some of the things that I definitely want to talk about. So let me just dive in. One of the things you you mentioned is that you had a board. Not every company has a board. How, you know how does how how did it come about that you you know that you had a board and how do you, how does the company and the two of you work with the board? Do you still work with a board today? I'm, I'm just if you can just kind of walk us through that a little bit, either one of you. So again, remember uh, we'll sort of roll back to when we bought the business. Um, we bought the business together, knowing that this was something I'm going to run. Right. This was always something that I came back to the U.S. to run a business and we partnered up on it. And the main strength of that partnership was the fact that my father had already run businesses. And so he understood all the non-engineering elements that are needed to run a business, which I didn't understand. I, I from, from my background was engineering. I went to school for engineering. I was doing engineering in three different jobs prior to to buying into this company. And so this other structure around you as an entrepreneur um, was important. And it was his drive to say, we need to put a board in place because it will help give you advice and help you grow as, uh, as the chief. Um, he helped with accounting and, and lawyers and all those things that an engineer has absolutely no idea what to do there. And so we'd had a board since literally we were this little tiny floor tech. Um, I think we were only five people when we bought the business total. And uh, we still had a board of directors, right? And I think it was it was certainly instrumental for me early on because the board of directors were also successful entrepreneurs. And so I had my father who had, who had started and sold a business and had um, two other people, actually one of three other people on the board that all had successful business backgrounds and were all willing to give advice. Because when, when you're 29 years old and your only background is engineering, you need a lot of advice on stuff that is that it takes to run an entire business that um, is beyond the engineering. And so that's, that's sort of continued till today. But it's actually something that, you know, we, we're continuing to look at because I've now since uh, gotten involved in a lot of uh, CEO um, growth groups. Uh, I was Vistage and um, Strategic Coach and now a third one. Um, and so I've got a network now. And so it's something that maybe isn't as, uh, as significant as it was in the past. And so we've actually shrunk the board size down. The board size is smaller. Um, but it's, for the twenty, what is it, twenty six years now? We've had a we've had a board in place as strategic advisors. Um, that's really always been the role. And we're not a public company, so you don't need them for anything else. It's really just strategic advice. Brilliant, in my opinion. I think you know, understanding that it's just impossible for any one person to know it all. There's just too many too many aspects of it, and it takes some time. And, you know, sometimes bringing somebody from the outside, just this crazy idea that somebody else thinks of and says, had you ever looked at it this way? Because sometimes, you know, when you're in the forest, it's hard, you know, 
it's tough to see. So kudos to you. I I also think that the the managers uh, um, appreciate having somebody besides ourselves to bounce ideas off. So people on our board were experts in manufacturing technology and and air, air conditioning. And so oftentimes an outside source besides the two of us adds more credibility to, to what they're saying and what they need. I like that. I think it's a, a human issue. Yep. The other, so the two other things that I wanted to hit on that you said that I just think everybody needs to make sure that they caught what you said was sticking to your core competency. I just think that that, you know, we talk to clients all the time um, about, you know, do they know, do they really understand what their core competency is? And, you know, though you're diversified. And you know, I think everybody, every company should be diversified. I think it's f- fabulous, but you stick to your core competency. And that's, it's pretty impressive. I, I just, um, not a lot of people miss that. And sometimes they end up, you know, their, their core competency is A, you know, A and B, and they end up, you know, running a restaurant or, you know, something yeah. that it's like, you know, you're just, it's, you're so far away from what your core competencies are. Um, we use this silly thing called the rule of thumb for core competencies. If, if the thumb is your core competency, you can't get more than two fingers away from your core competency. You start going past that and you're out in the woods. So yeah. it, it, it's an interesting one because it's, it's a somewhat regular debate uh, amongst the management team here is to because we're we're always seeing new paths new opportunities and um so we pretty regularly have that discussion about okay wait a minute <laughs> does this make sense that we actually because again we're we're pushing for diversity pushing diversity and so it comes at you in many forms and, and there's a lot of gray i mean your core competency isn't always perfectly chisel cut right and so um we're, it's a regular debate it does this make sense should we go down this path you know and we're doing one right now well, we're going to start um, bringing in a product that we're going to then brand. And we're not a distribution company. We're a manufacturing company. And so it is it is sort of a deviation from even what you would classically call our core competency. But it rolls into our core industry and it, it level, leverages our core brand. And so, you know, there's a lot of definitions of that. And um, we are always looking for ways to expand it that makes sense. Yeah, but even, even in this one, the... the, the the technology, technology of air conditioning, and right. We still understand the technology. It's just the distribution is different. Yeah. yeah. So, it, but so, it, but it is a stretch on what we would have otherwise defined as our core competency. And so, I think it's okay to do that, but you have to recognize when you're doing that. You can't just chase everything. So, sure. um, for example, we never do install, and we get people asking us all the time, all the time. Can't you just do install? Can't you take care of the install with us? And that is a very different um, business. Yeah. When you start flying people across the country to do installations from Syracuse, New York, and we just won't do it. And so, you know, there's, we're, we're pretty good at, at keeping those borders, but I, I also say that we, we stress test those once in a while. That's, no, I think that's a fabulous way to think about it. Are there, you know, can you think of projects that were presented to you that you said no to, and in hindsight, you sit there and say, boy, are we so glad that we didn't do that? (laughs) 
Oh, I actually could think of some the other way. I wish we had done it. <laughs> Fair enough. I remember, I remember early on seeing at a trade show spot coolers, these, these machines on wheels that have air conditioning in them, and they would just reject the heat out the back or the water. And I thought, that's the silliest idea ever. I mean, who's going to want this thing, which is horribly inefficient, it's a dumb idea, and well, that was a big miss. <laughs> that became those became pretty successful businesses. Yeah, they were large. They are, they are. Did, we didn't see it really that 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 also is an important feature. Is that if you have a really good core competency and and expertise, you need to charge for it. You can't dilute it to the point where you're getting so low margins you can't make any money. I mean. I, I think it's critical that the pricing of your expertise is, is enough to keep going and invest in R&D. I mean, we put a lot of money into R&D every year to um, look for new applications. But uh, if we didn't have the profitability, we couldn't do that. Great point. Really appreciate that. When you look back, you know, at your time together working through things, Talk to you, what were some of the obstacles that were thrown at you guys through the years that, you know, you you look back and say, boy, are we glad we made it through that. Can you talk about, you know, one or two obstacles that uh, were thrown at you? I mean, there's, I, I think the, um, the two most significant that come to mind to me, and, you know, this is, shouldn't come as a surprise to any business that's been around for, for over 20 years. Um, is twice we've almost gone out of business. And, um, you know, those, those really throw you sideways. And I remember the very first time was, was probably six months after we bought the business. I mean, that, that soon, within six months, we were bleeding so much cash. We thought, well, what did we get into? And uh, I remember having a board meeting. It might have only been the fifth or sixth board meeting. And we had a discussion about how you take a company chapter of what I remember. Well, that was a really quick spend of my money that I had saved up over the last four years. And, um, and the, within two weeks, we got a major contract from a company called Food Lion, and um, it saved the day. It, it completely saved the day. And we built off of that. And then something similar happened again after we bought our, uh, sent the business here, the cleaner business that's in this building. We had a major customer, a too big concentration. Again, you get nervous when concentration gets heavy. If I remember right, at the time, their concentration was 65% of that business. And and they got bought by an an international company. And the reason the international company bought them was to take them out. They didn't buy them to adopt the technology. They bought them to take them out. And as a result, they took out all of their vendors. And so they moved it to... uh, yeah, whatever they had, they moved to Europe and didn't bring anybody along. And so, you know, we took 65% of our business and shut it. What's the zero? Over, literally over a phone call at lunchtime. I'll never forget the phone call. I mean, I'm talking to the guy and he said, I need you to stop what you're doing. And I said, you know, we're, we're, we're going through an acquisition. I said, well, do you mean at the end of this PO? And he goes, no, I mean at the end of this phone call. So you need to go out on the floor and just stop. And that was 65% of our business. And so those are, those are tough days. Uh, we were we were fortunate. They were very fair. They paid yep. for everything that we had in line, all yeah. the inventory, all the stuff that we had on order. Um, yeah, so we didn't. They were honest. We we didn't get hung for any of right. the 
costs, but we wow. lost 65% of the go forward revenue. And that's, you know, your whole, your whole, think about your structure of your business and, and the infrastructure and everything else and people. Um, so those are tough days. There's no doubt those were tough days. Um, and, you know, it took all of us to really put our heads together and settle everybody down and, um, and, and plow forward. And, and, and again, you know, just continually, both those episodes continually reinforced this diversity This we got to keep, we can't rest until, you know, we get concentrations down to a point where you could lose any one of the biggest business segments or any one of the customers and not have a negative impact on the business. And that takes a lot. That takes a, I mean, you really have to be focused to do that. Um, and we've always been focused and, and now we push even for international diversity because we feel that's a diversity against territory. So, you know, it's not only the industry, now we're starting to look at more and more international work to continue this push for diversity. And so and those are the two that come to mind to me. Those, those were really, really challenging times for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, interesting good news is that uh, on that line about diversity or having too much business in one sector, the, the, we started the wine cooling business from absolute zero, zero. And now it represents two thirds of our total revenue. So now we're, we're looking at the point where wine, which has grown so well and continues to grow, um, we need to be careful that, that it, it doesn't overshoot or, or diminish the other parts of the business, which actually can be more profitable. So yeah. we need to watch the balance that we have there. Well, what's interesting about the wine, so you might step back and say, holy cow, now you're back again at, the, at your 60% scare number. Um, but the diversity inside of wine is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, we now have something like our, our customers are actually our distributors. And I think there's around 140 distributors around the world and 55 countries that we sell wine to. So you would have to have a collapse in the category on all 55 countries and 140 distributors. So it's, it's, it's extremely well diversified within its own inside of wine. It's, it's not, there's not any single customer that represents um, a significant element uh, of wine, but as category, there's something that's wine doesn't get a lot around the world, I guess we're okay for a little while. <laughs> I guess the keel is coming out strong. <laughs> if you look at the projects that you have tackled, um, talk about some of the toughest, most demanding projects that you've put together through the years, just to give people a kind of a, a taste. You know, we, we talk about the clean room. We've talked about, you know, the, the wine guardian. Um, but I think that there's some, you know, some other ones out there that you're really proud of what your team has put together. And there, there's a bunch. Um, one of one of one that everybody loves to point to, and it it sort of definitely creates a lot of buzz, is the world's largest Ferris wheel that was built in Vegas. That's probably half a dozen years ago now. Called yeah. the Link Wheel at, at Caesar's Palace. It's 550 feet high, and if you've ever been there, it's it, you can't miss it. It's the highest thing in all of Vegas. Okay. Um, essentially, the the people ride in pods. So they're spheres, glass spheres. There are 28 of those pods on the wheel, and each one of those pods holds 40 people. 40. So it's a lot. 
Um, and and glass ball. It's, it's just a big giant glass ball in the sky, 550 feet high with 50 pe- 40 people in it. And the design right. temperature yeah. outside yeah. is 110 degrees and solar. Right. And so uh, we were approached, which is really interesting because it, it's still to this day, the only time that we really were cooling people. But the only reason that, that it was a uh, project that we would take on is because it wasn't the comfort of the people, but it was the life safety of the people that was uh, of paramount concern. Because of those extreme conditions, there, there, could, there is no option to fail on the, on the air conditioning. And so they came to somebody who does something much more critical and tight tolerance uh, like that we do for all these other clients because they felt comfortable that we could come up with solutions that would ensure the integrity of that climate in every situation, every circumstance. And so we had to. And it was really interesting because we get to work with their fire departments and their their security personnel. And, you know, we had to run through all the scenarios. Well, what if this fails? What if that fails? And so the custom design in the bottom of the the, 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 the pants of all. Yeah. So it's just a really interesting project from the dynamics of everything around it, as well as the technology we had to deploy. We have five levels of redundancy in that system. None of them communicate with each other so that the, the probability, you start to knock down probability of taking all of them out. And, um, you know, just a really cool project. It's very visible. Lots of people know it. They've written in it. Um, and that, you know, we're a critical component to that, to the link wheel. And uh, so that was, I mean, it was, it's, you know, projects like that are really fun for the team as well. It's, it's not only technically challenging, but it's just, it's really interesting, and, and the entire company gets excited and jazzed for for doing these things, and they can physically see it in the ad. It's, right. You know, the other ones that are similar to that are these um, rockets. Uh, we're probably the world leader in protecting payloads, satellites that are loaded into rockets prior to launch, and we do this now on, you know, we've, we're doing it with South Korea. We do it on every launch base, just about every launch base here in the United States where we have our systems that are there on the ground that are connected to the rocket that are cooling these satellites. And they might be commercial satellites, you know, serious or whatever, but they're more likely uh, military. We do a lot of military um, launches. So we're, you know, that's, those are they're really critical projects. Um, again, not much option for these machines to fail because you could lose a, a very expensive satellite that if you're about to go to orbit and, um, so there's a really, it's just really interesting, and and people love to be a part of that. Um, the the Koreans actually just had their very first launch ever, and half my engineers knew about it because they just keep tabs on it. It's just fun for them to keep tabs on. I wonder when they're going to do the launch, and the launch went off. It was successful. We got big thank yous from the the, the Korean uh, aerospace group, and um, yeah, it's, to be parts of that as a small company here in Central New York is is really quite amazing. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's, this is the family biz show. So let's talk about the two of you. Our, like you said, you, you went into business together. So you probably had a really good idea that, you know, your personalities were complementary. But, you know, when, you know, being family members, there's always that father son dynamic is a little different in within, you know, most families. When you guys don't agree, how do you work through? You know, those, how did those conversations work? Just talking at it from the father-son perspective and the business perspective, how does that mesh for the two of you? That's, that's a good one. I, I think um, 
Generally speaking, we do agree. Uh, when we don't agree, since Mike is going to own the business, I mean, he owns it now, mostly, um, and to take it over, I opt to him uh, because he's, he's got to live with that decision more than I do. So that's, I think that's one rule of thumb that we've gotten to. Now, originally, earlier, when when we were both more equal partners and everything, yeah, there was probably more discussions. But uh, so we think a lot of our life. We, we, you know, he, we, we grew up together, both of us, hands-on people. I mean, Mike, you know, tell you stories about helping build the horse barn that we had. And, I mean, we both been very... Uh, involved in hands-on projects, and so um, I think that uh, that togetherness allowed us to um, not take, not challenge each other on decisions. But I think ultimately it's because he's going to own it. He should. From your perspective, Mike, anything to add? Well, yeah, I would say that that's true. I mean, certainly in the last um, you know number of years, um, you know, I've really run the business now. And it's, it's sort of an evolution. We came in together as partners, almost equal in percentage. And now we just keep shifting and, and I've learned and, and, and run the business. Um, so I don't think there's, there's not, there's, it's very different when somebody, I never considered myself working for my father. I think that's, that's maybe one of the big distinctions. Um, companies that have a transition where the father actually ran the business, then the son or daughter comes in and tries to learn how to run it. I think that's a very different dynamic. And I'm actually in, I mean, some CEO groups where that is in the case. And I look back and say, that's a really different dynamic than we ever had because we didn't, it wasn't set up that way. This right. as the business sits was not something that he owned and ran and I'm coming in and trying to ride his coattails. It was always this collaboration of together, how we're going to run this, how to run this business. And, and I think he did a good job always making sure that it's, it was always being steered toward me running the business. Um, and it becomes more and more so that transition just, you know, continues to plow on. And, um, so I think it was a different, I think it was a different role. I think that we made a commitment a long time ago that he would ultimately own the business. So every year we gift him stock. Um, so, so that it doesn't hit the tax consequences and then he ends up, We'll, we'll end up 100% ownership. So, right. Uh, but you have to do that over a period of time because you're only allowed to get so much tax free uh, in any one year. Yep. That's so that really important to have good advisors that help you through those things so you don't make a big tax mistake by, you know, um, erroneously. Um, have you ever, through the years, either not agreed or thought of a project where you, when you brought it to the board, the board advised against, you know, your gut was telling you to go one direction. The board said, you know, open your eyes to some different thinking. Has that ever happened? Mm, well, I don't have anything really that comes to mind. Um, nothing significant that really jumps out. There's always stuff. There's always little things, you know, there's, all, yeah, there's, there's always, I mean, I think that, um, you know, smart enough to step back and say, okay, don't know everything. Let's keep talking to people and let's, Let's I same with my management team. I mean, I sit with them uh, several times a month and, you know, we're always 
um, discussing strategic paths forward and, and having an open line of communication where they'll challenge me. Yeah. I'd say, no, why should we do that? Or let's go this way. And, you know, I learned, I learned early on um, that you're never going to run this thing successfully by yourself. And so as a result, I can't think of any one thing where, oh, I was hell-bent on going one direction and, and then went to the board and they shut it down. I, it, it, I think it's, all of this is an evolution process where everything is discussed. Um, ultimately, you have to make a decision. And I've never, I'm an only child, so only children are really good at making decisions. <laughs> and every, every other only child I've ever met can make a decision pretty damn quick. Because think about it, when you grow up, you play for yourself. It's pretty easy. Um, and so I've always had to be careful that I'm first um, exploring advice of others and then then making that decision. And I'm never afraid to make that decision. But um, as opposed to making a decision and then taking it to a board and saying, what do you think? And and then shooting it down. I think we flipped that over on its head fairly well. I, I, I don't, I can't think of anything where. Yeah. It, it sounds, it sounds like your management team is very strong and you rely upon them. So you've vetted things before you're going to the board, you know, here's where we're going. Here's a direction, you know, you, you're asking the management yeah. So I, there are six direct reports um, to me. And, you know, I have, you know, I've always been of the mind that I ultimately want them really running the business. And as much as I can get them to run the business and each segment uh, that they are responsible of, of the business is important to me because if it all rolls back to me, we will just, we will limit what the business can accomplish. And so you know, it's, it's a long time in the making, you know, a management team is not something you put into place in within two years and off you go. I mean, it is uh, every single position with save one has been rotated. You know, we, we're not the same person in that seat um, since for the, for more than 12 years, something like that. Right. So um, as the business grows, there's been some rotation there to keep getting somebody better and better and, and I think the team now is, you know, the team now is the best the team has ever been by far, by far. And they just, they really do have the ability to run day to day of this business without much input from me or they know where there's input needed from me. Um, and they run it. I mean, I can, I can disappear for two weeks and I come back and this place is still standing products still going out the back door and, bills are getting sent and, you know, things are getting received. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's really comes back now to so long-term strategic direction is, is the driver that, that I'll play in that role, but they're, the management team is critical. And, and I really defer to them always on at any time we're making decisions. They're, they're absolutely a part of that. Cause if they weren't, it wouldn't do any good for me to make a decision without them being a part of that process, because it would be really hard to get them motivated to go down those paths. Yeah. It- and from some of the groups you've been in, you probably can see. So those two differences, having a strong management leadership team, having a board of directors, that's not that's not in every single family business or entrepreneur's business because they have really strong feelings about how things should be done. They just were good at doing it. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's just easier for me to do it than to teach it kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I see a lot. You're absolutely correct. And I don't know 
I don't know if in the family business, a typical problem is the dynamic is that the father had put in place people and now the child is coming in and inheriting those people. I think that's, uh, I see some situations where that's a, pro- a problem, particular problem, um, or it's just the two of them trying to do everything themselves. And that's also a problem. And so I think, again, I think this is a bit of a unique situation for how we got to where we are today. But um, I certainly rely heavily on the management team and, and want the management team. Maybe that's more important. I actually want them to be running the business. Yeah. Well, I think one, one of the, a lot of family businesses are not just father and son. There is also two or three sons or daughters. And so they all want a piece of the business. So they, you know, so they set up a board and the board is nothing but family members. And so they don't get any real, you know, creative outside uh, input uh, into decision-making. It's just too narrow. So I, I think that a lot of family businesses make a mistake in trying to, I mean, I have a good friend of mine in Texas who, stuck in, in the family business and, and he was the only one that could run it, but everybody else wanted a piece of it. And, and, and he it just drove him nuts, absolutely nuts, tore him apart because he was trying to run a business and tried to satisfy their needs too. Yeah. It was too much. So yep. I, I think that people, you know, that make a mistake in not saying that he's have a leader and, and the right leadership. Uh, and the rest of you should take a pay house or something. <laughs> yeah, family business can be very sticky. That's for sure. Yeah. Especially when there's, I mean, again, I'm an only child. So there's that, that really facilitates stuff, right? Um, right. Do you, there's a question. Do you have any children that have any interests in what you're doing today? Yeah, I have, I have two boys. Um, so now we complicate life. <laughs> um, and one's in more in, uh, he's in real estate finance, uh, living in Boston. He loves his life. And the other one is just graduating college, getting his MBA. But he's in the second one is an engineer. I mean, he really, I'd say uh, of the two boys, he thinks the most like my father and I, for sure. Um, and, and I think there'd be some interest um, there. But again, they're young. So I, I don't, I don't, and I didn't, I worked for three other companies. I was international and then we bought a business together. Again, that was very different. We made this decision to consciously buy this business together as opposed to me saying, okay, I'll come and join a business. That's, and so I don't want to put that burden on, on either of the boys either. And they're pretty young. And so I want them to sort of explore and, and do their own thing and make a decision on themselves as to where they want to go. And if they want to come here, that's, that, that's interesting. And, and we can take a look at how that might play out. Um, but, there's no, I've given them no expectations that, oh, I need someone here to, to run this business. That absolutely has is, is not been put on their shoulders because I don't want them to think that they have to do that. Right. The business is not, was not set up that way, is not set up that way. And so it doesn't have to be its path. It can be a path, but it doesn't have to be its path. Agreed. I, I would throw to you one of the things that I've often said and try to teach is that the building a strong management slash leadership team is the route to a successful transition. Regardless of whether that's within the family or management buyout or even sold to an outsider, because you know an outsider doesn't want to buy a business that they have to come in and run everything. Um, that yeah, yeah. makes you more valuable. All the right things there. Yeah, right. I mean, again, without a doubt, I, I completely agree. The management team needs to be running the business. I, I, it needs to be that 
clear. And so that you're absolutely right. Now, the opportunities of, of where the business goes, and now I'm still young. I'm, I'm not even 56 yet, so I'm 55 years old. So I'm pretty young. Um, but the pathways are, are wide open because of the strength of the management team. And so, sure, a, a young son could come in eventually and, and grow into that role. I mean, you, you, you know, it's a pretty successful and, and large business now compared to the four-person business I bought when I was 29. <laughs> Um, so it'd be a lot harder to step in in your 20s and run this business. But again, if the management team's in place, then um, they're still would continue to run, really run the business. Great. Um, as you're sitting here today with you and your team and the, you know, the two of you discussing, you know, what's going on, what would you say are the things that are, what are the, what are the, you made, like the pains, the frustrations right now that you're dealing with today? Why change? Why change? Yeah. Oh, it's never. I mean, inflation um, was, of course, very interesting um, uh, for the last two years. This inflationary situation is something that I've never seen in the 26 years that I've been doing this. Um, we've never had um, runaway costs like like we did here. Um, still have. Still have. Um, and it got to the point where even customers were numb to it. I mean, we were late to the game thinking, okay, well, maybe we don't have to raise our prices so much. And we're definitely late to the game. Uh, but even got to the point where some customers were calling me saying, hey, you guys raising your prices. I just want to make sure that I've got it built in right for this year. And never in the history of owning this company has a customer ever called me and asked me if I'm raising my prices. Right. Um, you know, it was just, a, just crazy times. Um, and the supply chain issues are real. Um, you know, sitting here right today, we've got hundreds of units in backlog that won't move for another five weeks because of a party. I've got units that customers would do anything for, pay anything for, to get out this calendar year that I can't get to till 2023. I've got parts that are now vendors are quoting me 60 week lead times. Can you imagine somebody quoting you a 60 week lead time on a part? It's the middle of next summer, late next summer. Wow. That's just, and you know, nobody knows where that's going to unwind. Um, and so customers are starting to do odd things. Customers are starting to put in bigger orders than I know they need. And they're asking them for delivery sooner than I know they need uh, because they're afraid of not getting it when they need to ship their product. And so um, that's setting us up a little bit for a, a longer term problem, because if everything gets front loaded, then there's going to be a gap in the need um, for some of these customers. And so it's dominant um, in non-wine and in, in sort of our semiconductor, our OEMs, some of these others that are really afraid of their own tools. Yeah. Um, I don't see that being the same situation wine. People aren't buying forward a wine seller, um, but there's a certain segment of our business that I think in, maybe a year and a half time is probably going to go a little bit soft because of this, everything that's getting pulled forward right now when supply chain normalizes, there's going to be a gap in their, in their need. But um, yeah, right now it, it's supply chain without a doubt. It's um, it's a daily, daily task. I, uh, it's funny. I, I describe it to people outside of the industry as playing whack-a-mole every day, our <laughs> procurement team, every single day. They, they, they saw one, they whack them all down and it pops up over here. And they, they, they solve that one and then it pops up again. And it does, I mean, we've, we manage 4,000 parts in this building. So 
the likelihood of one of them not showing up when it's supposed to or all of a sudden lead time changing is pretty high. And uh, we face it every day. There is, there is an, another area where we get kind of frustrated, and that is in the, uh, the medical uh, field. Uh, we've developed uh, our own units for certain medical, mostly hospital applications. We're working with a, another company that's doing a similar type thing. We build a part that goes into their unit. Uh, but the regulatory and uh, the, I should say that the inertia of, of the medical community to do something new, better, it's just, it's just amazing. It's, it's frustrating for us because we know we have a solution that will cost them less, reduce their time, do, do a much better job than their traditional methods, and um, they, we can't get them to buy it because it doesn't fit their mold or they're not used to it or their insurance company's not yeah. paying for it, right? They, and we came out with a product that was acclaimed by the researchers, but the insurance company said, well, we can't pay for that. We're not going to pay for that. So these are people... This is a, a product for residential application for people, kids with asthma, especially kids with asthma, where we had a through the wall or window unit that would tremendous improvement in the kid's ability to learn and to, to function. And the insurance companies won't pay for it. So that's been a real frustration for us. Yeah, medical community is tough. Um, that, but again, it's, so we know that, right? If we're diversified, it would be great if they were easier to work with. But um, you know, we're not going to try to make a whole business out of the medical community. <laughs> you're going to you're going to spend an awful lot of money and maybe not to make that much headway. Um, and it's unfortunate, but um, so we bounce in a different direction. That's it's all we can do, right? We have to keep growing as a business and uh, evolving. It would be really great if the medical community was more open to new technology. Yeah. Same thing in the dental industry. We did a big study in the dental, dental yeah. industry last yeah. year yeah. and came upon some just startling data um, on, air, on poor air quality in the dental community, high, very high VOCs, um, like off the charts VOCs. And uh, um, but to, to the point, I mean, just to, anecdotally, it, it, it killed our sensors. It was so high, the VOCs, that we actually destroyed sensors. VOCs um, Sorry, volatile organic, volatile organic compounds. So they're gases that are given off by anything synthetic. Um, so it could be materials of construction, but in the dental community, it's more likely processes that they're doing in your mouth to clues and all. Yeah, all of that stuff is chemical in nature, and it's giving off a gas. And you're in the dental industry. There are no indoor air quality regulations. You could literally open a dental clinic in your basement or in your spare bedroom or in a shopping mall. Strip mall. I mean, think about where dentists are located. Many of them are in strip malls. And there is zero air quality regulations. And and you've got tight buildings, and they're generating all of these gases between their cleaning agents and their process chemicals that are never getting out of that space. Um, very, very unhealthy. And um, we went in, we did a study, we developed a solution. Um, but again, it's an industry that's very resistive to change. There's no money for them to make right. that change. Right. These are all little entrepreneurs themselves. So there's no ROI necessarily in improving indoor air quality. And so you come to a, you come to a wall and it's, it's very frustrating because you can, you could, you could be improving people's health, health 
and lies. And, um, and yet you run up against sort of the, the bureaucracy of an industry. Got it. As we're wrapping up here, it's getting to, getting to that time. Um, you both have been in business for many, many years and have lots of incredible knowledge. If you're just imparting your one or two pieces of wisdom to some, you know, an, a family business that's listening to this right now, what would be the, what would be from your perspective, one or two of the most important things that an owner or a family should be looking at and doing for the, their long-term success? Well, I, I think we, we touched on what I would say is is the most important thing, and it, uh, and I think it's you know to I guess to, to put it simply, constantly seek the advice of others. Um, you know, I've been involved in um, CEO groups for. <laughs> got to be getting close to 20 years now, uh, certainly 15 years. I've been involved in several different CEO groups, roundtables, where you're just constantly challenging each other and sharing ideas and learning from each other. And um, so whether it's a board or whether it's groups like that, you have to, you know, they, they, everybody says, oh, you only know what you know. And that's true. And if you if the, if the CEO is not expanding their vision and, and looking for ideas from others, then they're going to constrain the the possibilities of the corporation. As you said, one person won't know everything. And so to me, that's the the most important thing for the CEO is to constantly figure out how to be exposed to ideas that are coming from the outside because everything else inside the building has some pyramid effect from you, right? So, so all these ideas, the people that I've hired, you know, you want them to be strong and to be diversified, but they're still fundamentally reporting back up to me. And so there's always a little bit of a constraint on those ideas, whereby when I bring an outside group of CEOs and tour to our facility, there's, they don't have any uh, pre predetermined notions. They don't have any constraints of telling me, wait a minute, this is, this doesn't look right. This, you know, you guys could do a way better job than this. And, um, you know, I think that you, you have to put yourself in that situation. And I actually think that very few do. Um, unfortunately, I think people just don't realize how important it is to, um, to get that advice. Great. Thank you. From your perspective, Larry. That's uh, a hard one. I, uh, I, uh, I, I would think that, um, a business is a business, a family is a family and that they don't necessarily have to be the same. So, um, or have a business and you're bringing up a family, um, I think you need to have the mentality and, and, and focus that the business needs to run as a business and our family will run our family as our family. When you try to integrate family priorities into the business priorities, you, you face a huge conflict. You, you face a huge conflict with your employees because they see they have limited opportunities themselves. You, you limit your expertise or your diversity. I mean, because the family grows up, they generally grow up listening to the same political structure and music and, and, and many times they're growing up with a silver spoon, so to speak, using that cliche. Um, 
And that doesn't bode well for managing a business. You, 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 you don't relate to the employees. The employees don't relate to you. So I think that um, that would be one that I would say that you got to be tough. I mean, it's hard. You know, your family, your heart, but your business is your brain. I mean, you got to keep them that way. I, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Matter of fact, you have said it better than the ways I've said it in the past. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to go back and to listen to this recording to be able to pull that out for people. I might even make that a, a quote as, as we're putting these out to uh, your episode. I think that said it perfectly. Larry and Michael, Air Innovations in Syracuse, New York. You guys have been a joy and a pleasure to talk with today and you've really shared some important nuggets i hope those of you listening really grasp onto the the nuggets that were shared with you today my name is michael columbus i'm with family wealth and legacy in rochester new york and you have been listening to the family biz show thanks for listening to the family biz show we appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.